and what he does. And this morning we are looking at the story of Solomon. Last week we talked about David as uh, God's champion. This morning we are looking at Solomon uh, the king. And let's read our text from 1 Kings 10. I have, um, in what I'm going to read, I'm switching the weights to weights that are more familiar with us. Now, the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 25 tons of gold. Besides that which came from the explorers and from the business of the merchants and from all the kings of the west and from the governors of the land, King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold, seven and a half pounds of gold went into each shield. And he made 300 shields of beaten gold, four pounds of gold went into each shield. And the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. The king also made a great ivory throne and overlaid it with the finest gold. The throne had six steps, and the throne had a round top, and on each side of the seat were armrests and two lions standing beside the armrest, while twelve lions stood there, one on each end of a step on the six steps. The like of it was never made in any kingdom. All King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. None were of silver. Silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. For the king had a fleet of ships of Tarshish at sea with the fleet of Hiram. Once every three years, the fleet of ships of Tarshish used to come bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. Thus, King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought his present, articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses, and mules, so much year by year. And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen, he had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone, and he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of the Shephla. And Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Cue, and the king's traders received them from Cue at a price a chariot could be imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. And so through the king's traders, they were exported to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, open uh, your word to us this morning. Let us uh, come to see Jesus uh, better. In the name of of that Jesus we pray. Amen. Among the five best movies of all time is The Godfather. And uh, among the best scenes in The Godfather is uh, the baptism scene. This is uh, a scene that's lauded by critics and film students. Um, what, it, what it is is really the cross-cutting. It's the introduction of this technique called cross-cutting, where we really watch two scenes in parallel. Um, 
as we watch this scene play out, we see on one hand, um, Michael, the main character of The Godfather, and he is serving as godfather uh, to a young child in the baptism ritual. So we uh, hear the audio of this baptism liturgy being read, and we see Michael uh, standing at the front of the church, serving as godfather. But at the same time that this is going on, there's another scene that's cross-cut into it. And that's the scene of Michael's uh, agents, his deputies in the crime family that he is the head of, and they are carrying out murders against the heads of the other five crime families. He's taking over, he's enlarging his crime, criminal empire. And these scenes are cross-cut cross together in such a way that we are listening to the baptism liturgy, we're seeing Michael up there, but we're also seeing his men preparing these murders. And it's actually at the exact time that Michael is going through the part in the liturgy where he renounces Satan. He says, the priest asks him, do you renounce Satan? And Michael says, yes. And do you renounce the works of Satan? Yes. And as he is saying those words, his men are committing these murders. Our text this morning is one half of a cross-cut scene. Okay? In fact, some commentators look at 1 Kings 10 and they look at the glory that's described here, the riches that are described here, and they say this is the pinnacle of Solomon's reign. This is as glorious as it should be. In fact, they look at this as a, um, a messianic passage about, in fact, the Messiah's glory. But I think they're missing the other half of that cross-cut scene. So let me read this scene again, but cross-cut with Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17 is where God lays out the requirements, what a king in Israel is supposed to do, what a king in Israel is supposed to be. So let me read these two passages uh, spliced together. Deuteronomy 17 says, The king must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself, or make the people to return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. And from 1 Kings, Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from Kuwait. Deuteronomy 17 says, The king must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. And 1 Kings 10 tells us, The weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 25 tons. King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold. Seven and a half pounds of gold went into each shield, and he made 300 shields of beaten gold. Four pounds of gold went into each shield. And silver was considered nothing. Deuteronomy 17 says, The king's heart may not be lifted up above his brothers. And 1 Kings 10 tells us that Solomon made a great throne covered with ivory and overlaid with fine gold. The throne had six steps and its back had a rounded top. On both sides of the seat were armrests. 
with a lion standing beside each of them. Twelve lions stood on the six steps, one on either end of the step. Nothing like it had been made for any other kingdom. I think with that context, you begin to see how 1 Kings 10 is describing um, a tragedy. Solomon turns away from the instructions that God has given about who a king should be. He violates systematically each one of the instructions that God has given. See, and this is a double tragedy because um, we are hoping, we, are, we have such high hopes for Solomon. Last week we talked about David, right? David was God's champion. In fact, when you're reading the story of David, you, you start to hope, well, is this the one? Is this the one who is promised, who is to come and be God's true champion forever? God's true king? And yet, then, towards the end of David's story, we read these uh, horrible, horrible things that David does. Uh, the sexual assault of Bathsheba, the murder of her husband. And we realize David is not the one. David is not the one who can be God's true representative, but maybe his son. In fact, his son will be uh, the one who builds God's temple on earth. Maybe he will be God's chosen one. And in Psalm 72, David's final psalm, we read these messianic predictions. This is Solomon's inaugural psalm, and it's about how the king will give true righteousness to the land. So our, our hopes for Solomon are that he will rule in the way that God created the kings of Israel to rule. But he doesn't. He breaks each command. He acquires horses from Egypt. He acquires vast amounts of gold for himself. And he is literally lifted up over his brothers on this ornate throne. Solomon um, does as well as anyone can do for himself. He, he acquires really as much wealth as anyone could acquire. There's really nothing in this world that Solomon did not have, that he could not get. But he does not do it in the way that God calls him to do it. So I hope uh, it's clear at this point that the way that Solomon relates to Christ is not the way that David relates to Christ. He's not a prefiguring. He's like Adam. He's a failure in the way that we need Christ to succeed. And that brings us to our sacred reading this morning. Uh, Christ is tempted uh, in the wilderness. And I think uh, if you look closely, the temptations and these sins roughly parallel each other. So Solomon acquires gold, right? And gold is a provision. Gold is a, a way to meet your needs. Um, in our men's group on Thursday mornings, we've been reading uh, Andy Crouch's book, and in there he talks about how money gives us this 
power to have abundance without dependence. Right? Abundance without dependence. That's a line that's really st stuck out to those of us at that group. And that's what Solomon acquires here. He has abundance and no dependence on God. But when Christ faces this temptation, right, the devil offers him, hey, turn these stones into bread. You can use your power to, have, to meet your own needs. And Christ says, no, I will be dependent on God. I will be dependent on my Father. Similarly, Solomon acquires horses. Now, horses in the ancient world were like tanks, right? This is a new military technology, incredibly powerful. And horses were allowed Solomon to be a military superpower and an economic superpower because he also exported them. Uh, but when, uh, when the devil offers Christ that same a chance to have power and authority over the entire world, authority over all the kingdoms of the world, Jesus says, no, I will worship God. I will do his will. But I think it's actually this third temptation that strikes closest to the heart, and it's one that I think is somewhat difficult for us to understand on first read. See, we don't have a temple today. Um, the temple in Israel was the center of social life, of religious life, of political life. Um, we just don't have anything that is such a central point in our society. Maybe you could say the Super Bowl halftime show, uh, or maybe the, the inauguration of a president. Um, but what, what the devil offers Jesus here is the chance to be publicly validated. See, Jesus would descend from the top of the temple surrounded by angels. At that point, really no one could deny who he is. No one could deny, as he descends from the temple in glory, that this must be the Messiah. This must be the King of the Jews. He could start right there, his kingdom. And Jesus says no. Jesus instead will be recognized as the king of the Jews as he's lifted up on a cross. Jesus chooses to submit to his father's plan, not to seek his own glory. In John 8, Jesus says, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me. Jesus is the true King. He rules the way God commanded. He waits for the Lord to glorify him. And in John 17, we see him make this explicit. He prays to the Father, Father, the hour has come. This is, he's referring to the hour of his crucifixion. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. 
See, Jesus is no stranger to glory, and yet he sets it aside to do the work that God called him to do, and God raises him up again in glory and exalts him to the very throne of God. So how does this apply to us? We aren't kings. We don't have thrones. How do we talk about and think about glory? Well, I think a first question is, are we even allowed to desire glory? Right? In some ways, um, glory and self-glorification are intimately tied together for us. So it can be dangerous for us to talk about glory um, because we start to think, hey, uh, this is self-glorification, right? I'm seeking after my own glory. But really, God created us to have glory. He clothed us in glory. And yet, um, that glory came from God. See, the source of glory in the universe is God, okay? God pours out glory on his creation, including on us. But there's also a way that we can uh, try to get glory for ourselves, right? And when we get glory for ourselves that's not attached to God's glory, that is where we go wrong, right? Again, this goes back to abundance without dependence. We want to have glory, but we want it to be our own glory. We want it to be unconnected to the God who gives glory. And that ends up being a pale imitation of glory. There are two ways to get glory, and we see them in these texts. One way is Solomon's way, acquiring it for ourselves, bringing in all of these uh, rich and ornate things, uh, building a throne covered in ivory and then covering the ivory in gold. And yet that glory doesn't match up. It doesn't, doesn't measure up to the glory that God can give us. And Jesus sees that the true way to get glory is to be glorified by God, to be in proper relationship to God, where glory is poured out, but it is from the source of glory itself. And I want to take us to Revelation 3. In Revelation 3, uh, Jesus speaks to the church in Laodicea. And uh, often I think we get stuck. This, uh, this is the text where Jesus says, uh, you're neither hot nor cold, um, but lukewarm, and so I'll spit you out. And we get stuck on that phrase, and we don't read the rest of it. So I just want to read the rest of it this morning. He says to the church, you say, church, that I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. But you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, 
and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Jesus says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What is Jesus saying here? See, Jesus is speaking to a wealthy church, a church who think that they have sufficient glory. They've accomplished everything they need. They are rich, Jesus says, and they think they need nothing. They have acquired abundance without dependence. And Jesus, Jesus wants them to open their eyes to see them the way that he sees them. The way that they will be seen on the last day when all things are revealed. Jesus tells them that they are, in fact, pitiful. See, Jesus isn't inside their church. This is another um, often misused text. Jesus stands at the door and knocks. What's going on there? Well, Jesus is on the outside of the church. He's knocking. He's wanting to be let into his own church. They have a church that has no relationship to the one who is the Lord of the church. And Jesus tells them, I have received glory. I have all of the glory that you could want, and I will give it to you. I will let you sit on my throne with me as I sit with the Father. I, Jesus wants to give us this glory. But the way that we get it is not through acquiring things. It's not through uh, self-sufficiency. It's through being in right relationship with God himself. Even if we get all that Solomon had, even if we get all that the church at Laodicea had, gold and fine clothing thrones, none of these will erase the fact that we are naked and blind and wretched. But Christ offers us the solution to these things. He offers us fresh robes. He offers us true gold, wealth that won't disappoint. It's dependent on him. It's in relationship with him. So, when we read Christ's temptation and we cross-cut it with this passage in Revelation, it fits perfectly. Satan offers Jesus all the thrones of the world, but Jesus overcomes and takes his place on the throne of God, the highest throne. Solomon, the text about Solomon in 1 Kings, is is stunning in its dissonance with this text. Solomon builds his own throne and in the end is wretched and naked and pitiable. So, brothers and sisters, this week, 
I hope we consider what it looks like to cross-cut our lives against this text. As, as the narration goes in the background of Jesus telling us to get his gold, to take his clothing, to depend on him, and to take our seat with him, is there a congruence? Does it fit? Is there harmony between our lives in this passage? Or is it stunning in its dissonance? Is it stunning in the way that, uh, that Solomon's story is dissonant with this text? Is it stunning in the way that Michael Corleone is uh, renouncing the devil at the same time that he is committing murders? Is our selfishness and pride put in stark relief against these words? Jesus invites us to see our lives with this scriptural imagination. The imagination that, that envisions ourselves standing before the throne with all things made visible. And Jesus saying these words, offering, offering to us riches and glory. And he asks, are we willing to accept those riches from his hand, or are we clinging to our own riches? Brothers and sisters, let's pray. Lord Jesus, you offer us riches, you offer us glory, you offer us your throne. Please work in our hearts that we may see these to be true blessings, to be gifts that you give us, that you want us to have. Please help us to see the riches of this world, the glories of this world, uh, as they truly are, uh, things that cannot um, give us wealth, things that leave us poor and wretched. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.